You're listening to Bushwick Junction on Radio Free Brooklyn. This is a show about life's inflection points, hosted by me, Asha Saluja. It's about the crossroads in our lives, which paths we choose when we reach them, and where those choices lead us or don't. We'll talk about the decisions we agonized over and the decisions we didn't even realize we were making until years after we made them. We'll talk about how we decide things, how we weigh our options, or how we tap into our intuitions. And we'll talk about the degree to which our choices matter. Do we have any control over the things that alter our fate, or do we end up in the same place no matter which roads we take? On each show, I have a guest tell me all the big decisions they've ever made in order. We'll start at birth, fast forward to their first big decision, and map out the road their lives have taken as a series of these inflection points or junctions. Today's guest I'm really excited about because it's been a big bulk of her artistic life's work to think about this very same topic. April, hi, welcome. Hey. Uh, April Satarman is a, uh, let's see, experienced designer, architect, artist, uh, someone who experiments with, you say, code words and guerrilla street art at her side project, weirdsideprojects.com, and the founder and curator of something that as soon as she said these words to me, I was like, wow, we think about the same things. The Museum of Almost Realities, which is a collection of artifacts from the life you might have had. Um, April and I got to talking about this when we met at an event recently, and I was just struck by what a great way your medium is to think through this lives we might have had thing compared to live radio. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely a way, I mean... Do you want to talk a little bit about the Museum of Almost Realities and the type of stuff you showed there? Yeah, sure. So it's sort of based on three concepts. One being objects hold memory, like this is why we keep souvenirs and mementos. Um, Two, this quote I heard once, for every choice you make, you kill off a possible future. Sometimes you have to live with their ghosts. Wow. We all know what that means, right? Yeah. And, And the third being like you only put artifacts in a museum once they're no longer in use. Like you're not you're not using them anymore. So it's this idea of a collection of artifacts from the life you might have had. So it's actually this immersive installation where I let people walk through a series of artifacts. It's, it's written in second person. Um, things like, you know, license plate, June 2015, Minnesota. This is the license plate of the car that didn't hit you. The driver saw you and stopped just in time. You bike by unawares. And there's like a selection of these artifacts. There's like apartment keys with three different captions. They all say September 2017, but one caption says California. One caption says New York. One caption says Boston. And it's sort of like these three different lives that you might have been living somewhere different in September 2017. Um, So, yeah, all these artifacts that people get to browse through and then um, you get to wander around and choose whatever order you want to read them in. And then there's a contributions area where people can um, donate their own objects or what-ifs to the museum. It's like, your contributions help keep the museum running. Artifacts will be preserved and maintained. Acceptable contributions are fleeting moments, what-ifs, regrets, or or money is also accepted. (laughs) Um, And then as people leave, they actually get a receipt of their almost reality. It's this printed out receipt that actually has their name on it. And it says something about a career, love, something nice about this almost life, something a little sad, and then a piece of advice. Like, 
you know, that person with the cool shoes over there, you should go talk to them. Um, yeah, so actually the museum is based off of my life. It's my alternate reality autobiography, but a lot of the visitors, I've had uh, over a thousand people go through it so far. Um, a lot of the visitors like put themselves in the place they see, like their choices and the form of these objects that they can see and experience that way. Um, but yeah, it's actually like, yeah, I did get, you know, hit by a car. That's why it ended up in the museum. So which we can go into later. <laughs> and we've talked about, yeah, we're going to go through basically everything that wound up in April's museum, but we've talked about uh, how... So, so the thing that you said about uh, objects go into a museum when they're no longer in use, that's why a museum is a perfect medium for them. Like, I, I'm so interested in that no longer in use path or a uh, little fledgling of an idea but when you're when you're on air live you're never thinking about the things that are not in use you're thinking about like maybe you, you can only talk about what's been on your mind that day or like what memories are coming to mind in that moment when you're slightly nervous and like there's a mic in front of your face <laughs> so these are just like I don't know fascinatingly different ways to arrive at the same kind of like kernel of truth about life um so we're gonna talk obviously we're getting a little meta here already and we're (laughs) gonna talk about the different ways in which we think about the paths we do and don't take but uh because this is my show and this is how this goes we're going to talk mostly about april's lives and her paths her almost realities and her actual realities uh starting with your birth an actual reality Tell me about the circumstances into which you were born. Yeah, so I was born in the Bay Area, California, in a suburb about an hour south of San Francisco. Um, My mom's an artist, and my dad's a computer programmer, and I have a younger brother, and yeah, just uh, on a very quiet street, middle class, you know, sunny all the time. (laughs) So many people find ways to combine the two things that their parents do. (laughs) You're, you're, you're like, we're all just some combination of those two. Um, okay. Tell me about the first big decision that you made that you felt individu- individuated you as a person. Yeah. So when I was like eight years old or so, I'd been taking piano lessons for a little bit. Um, and it was the thing that, of course, I was forced to do, like take piano lessons, right? You want to be good at piano. Um And I remember sitting at the piano and crying a lot because I didn't want to practice. And my parents actually like gave me the choice of like, you can quit if you want to. Um, So I actually ended up choosing not to quit. And we actually found a new teacher and ended up like loving piano like 10 years later when like through high school. And it like really became my own thing that I could like compose music and like really felt like it was something that was helping me and saving me a lot. Um, so yeah, I'm very glad I didn't quit. Oh, and this is an artifact in the Museum of Almost Realities. Yes. Um, it's so funny, I mentioned this right before the show, but we had a different uh, anecdote about quitting or not quitting piano last week on my show when I interviewed Maria, who's now a sound artist by trade, which is wild. She quit uh, when she was ready, and you didn't. You stuck with it, and you know, these are just little anecdotal bits of childhood, but I think the way that we approach decisions is already sort of rooted in us at that time. What made you not quit? Do you, like, what made you stick with it? 
Man, um, I think the teacher helped and I think it helped that they actually gave me a choice like that. It wasn't it wasn't like you have to stick with this or else, you know, it was like I had I had the choice. Didn't feel forced. Uh, Did someone talk you through what might what good thing might happen if you stuck with it? Not that I remember. (laughs) It was someone like, but yeah, one day you might be really good at this and it'll be lots of fun for you. I don't. I don't recall that as any sort of pivotal moment now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking about how as children, the only time you get that story, like the, uh, the positive repercussions mm-hmm. of something you might do is for getting good grades. Like you are told time and time again, like, oh, if you get good grades and behave well in school, you'll get into a good college and get a good job and live a happy life. But everything else, no one explains anything else to us. We're just like why and they're like because and that's it and I think actually I kind of struggle I don't know if you share this but I kind of struggle with extrapolating out when I'm making decisions I'm kind of like I I don't really do the thought exercise of like what good could come of this it's always like what bad could come of this yeah I'm really good at the bad part too right (laughs) it's just it's like almost in our nature it's like what danger could I be in if yeah. I do this versus yeah. like what beauty could come? Yeah, it's like you. I, I'm very good at thinking about all the ways something could go wrong, but we could also think about like you just need one to go right. Also. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Uh, that's a decision making tool. Write that down. Think about all the ways that this could go right. Um. So that was pretty early childhood, mm-hmm. and then I know you feel that the second big junction you hit, which is one that many of us all of us, most of us hit is uh, what to do with your life after high school and where to go to college. Yeah, that was, it was something, you know, I was like very stressed about and I'm like, oh, I wanted, you know, I, I didn't know what to do. And it basically just comes down to whatever gut feeling you have at 18. Like you can make a pros cons list. Like I had the pros cons list. I was trying to choose between two schools. Um, and I, I ended up choosing the one that I had a better feeling at. And it's funny because one of my best friends who had the same exact choice between the same two schools had a better gut feeling at the other one. And she had the same like reaction. She's like, oh, people felt friendlier. And I'm like, oh, they felt friendlier at the place I chose. So, huh. And it, it was like, you know, hugest deal at the time. And now I, I never really think about it anymore. You never really do. But it, during it. So did you it was it a decision you ever regretted? I think maybe during college, I definitely did a couple times. And then since then, I've never, never have. Yeah. Cool. Do you think a lot about regret in the Museum of Almost Reality? Oh, yes. I mean, you're looking at a museum of my regrets. But are they all regrets? Not all regrets, actually. So to help balance it tonally, there is an area called the Library of Future Happiness. Hmm. And talk about, you know, thinking of the ways that things can go right. right? Like, there's the collar of my future dog. Oh, yeah, I saw that. I, I don't know, though. Like, you don't regret uh not quitting piano oh yeah that actually yeah now that i think about it it's yeah it's not all regrets there are some ones where i'm very proud of the decision i made mm-hmm. instead yeah the the piano book and the quitting it's like i am glad that i didn't quit and same with um like the flight and stuff like that there are there are junctions that i'm like i'm very glad i didn't do that so yeah, yeah. what is your relationship to regret do you see are you in the camp of like I can't regret anything because if I didn't do that, I wouldn't be where I am today and you just never know. Or 
do you think it's something worth leaning into and learning from? I think, I mean, the, the part of the reason why I made the museum is sometimes I would hoard regrets. Wow. So the museum is actually for letting go because you're putting things to be safe in the museum, but then you get to go on with your life. Yeah, you're putting them on display. They kind of lose their power. Yeah, and like even some of them, they were like one of the artifacts is like artifact removed and it's like curator's notes, some things are not worth saving. Mm. So it's like after a while, some things like aren't. Um, but yeah, I was like, I was like hoarding things. I was like, okay, I need to acknowledge they were important, but then it's a place to let them go. Yeah. Powerful stuff for... 14 minutes in today on Radio Free Brooklyn, at Bushwick Junction on Radio Free Brooklyn, and we're, we're um, solving regret. So let's talk a little bit about after college <laughs> and uh, basically your first gig. Yeah, so I was working internship right after school, and I was, you know, the very lost post-graduation thing that a lot of post-grads feel. And, you know, internship was fine. People were friendly. Projects were great. Um, but I knew I didn't want to be doing that forever. Well, what was it? What exactly? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so I graduated with um, from Berkeley with a double major in architecture and music, which was part of the reason why I went there. Um, it was also a lot of pressure because I was a little burnt out from architecture and uh, and music a little bit, too, after studying them for so long. Um yeah, and then I was working in product design when I first graduated. So mechanical engineering, I was doing like 3D modeling, building prototypes, um, stuff like that. So yeah, it was a good first job. Um, but did you have any goals at that time for what you knew you wanted to be doing instead? Uh, I knew I wanted to be doing something design related. And I had this idea I was like going to live in San Francisco or something like that. Um, but yeah, I knew I wanted to do something design related. I was just like, oh, I did architecture. And now, now what am I going to do? Um, so I remember like looking at TED Talks and like going on websites all the time. Like I set like a personal goal for 2013 that... I wanted to do something new, exciting or new, no, new or scary out of my comfort zone every month. Wow. Um, cause I was like, I don't want to just like, just work and that be the end of it. And I was like, oh, I want to like, I was like, so used to it going at such a fast pace that I was like, okay, like what can I do now that I no longer have accountability with school anymore that I can keep on learning and growing? Um, so yeah, I would, you know, do things like even just simple as like, oh, I, st- I bought a bike and started biking to work stuff like that mm. that was like one month goal yeah um and yeah so I was like looking at things and like just looking at what was out there and thinking oh I should apply to stuff and applying um and I saw this thing called Experience Institute which was um founded by he's now a very dear friend uh Victor Saad and um he had did this thing called the Leap Year Project about in 2012 about encouraging people to take leaps in their lives like if you had a year to take this leap like what's that thing you would do with this community to support you wow wait i i'm so curious to know more about that maybe we save it for offline um so you got involved with him and that yeah so basically i applied for that Uh, i turned in my application very late um and then i got accepted um they were looking for the founding class to help like start the program because it had never been done before um, and I got in, I got accepted to that and it was like a 9.58 on a Friday, 9.58 a.m. on a Friday. Um, and then five minutes later, my boss at the job uh, called me into his office 
to say he was like, oh, you've been doing great. We'd like to offer you full time position with this salary, with all these benefits wow. and like staple job. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's like this choice of like I can go join this like weird sort of startup thing. Education thing sounds cool, but never been tested might be, you know, who knows? Or this like staple job offer, which was like, you know, comfortable enough and like, you know, not not bad at all. Um, so I had a talk with Victor over the weekend and he was telling me about it. He's like, yeah, we're going to be building this together. And he sort of ended the call with it won't be easy, but it'll be worthwhile. How did you know to take his word on that? It just I'm a sucker for that line. Yeah. You know, like that's such a good line. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, and it's like you never want to take the easy way. Out. Yeah. And I was like, I was 23, you know, and I was like. I one of my other coworkers was like, hey, if it doesn't work out in a year, we'll still be here. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, that was that was sort of, yeah. So I, I bought a one-way ticket to Chicago. Wow. And was it not easy and was it worthwhile? Yes, it was It was definitely not easy, but it was very worthwhile. And, um, you know, just, you know, you're building this program with a cohort of like amazing other five other amazing people. Um, yeah, I still think it's one of the best decisions I've made. What kind of, what, what were you doing exactly? Oh yeah. So it was like designing your own year based on like projects and apprenticeships on things you wanted to focus on. So I wanted to focus on like experiential design. Um, so I worked with this web dev company in Chicago and then I worked with the architecture firm in Seattle and then worked on like public art and uh, social media stuff in Chicago again with two different firms, an architecture firm and an advertising agency. And just part of it was like learning a lot about myself. Like, how do I deal with stress? Like, how do I deal with, like, I didn't know anybody when I landed in Seattle. Like I had one point of contact and I was like, okay, you don't know anyone. You need to go make friends now. Like, wow. how are you going to spend your evenings? Like, how are you going to spend your time? How are you going to like pack your stuff and every three months move around and, you know, how do you how do you keep your community when you're traveling all the time? So this was a year long program mm-hmm. wherein you traveled to a bunch of different places around the country and like learned about what you wanted to learn about. Yes. So it kind of doesn't sound like that hard of a decision, <laughs> uh, but it doesn't land you with a guarantee at the end no. about anything. And also because it was the first year and we were figuring out a right. lot of things as we went along. That's. That sounds like such a valuable experience. And it sounds like you've learned about a lot of things that you do now. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It was great. So in the museum of almost in the almost reality, the unreality of you staying at the job was you'd be in a substantially different place right now. Yes. Yeah. That's the office mug artifact in the museum um, where it's like you stay at your job because it's a 12 minute commute uh, and it. I don't remember exactly what it says, but it ends with the uh, stability is worth the cost of freedom. Mm. So you definitely, you definitely romanticize this <laughs> yes, idea. I did. No, not, not yeah. just did, but now I feel like yeah. I'm feeling from you that you're really proud of that decision. It, it is much easier. Like now in retrospect, I definitely had times during that year where I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? Um, gotcha. So, um, what else did I want to say about this? So, can we dig in a little further on the the unreality, the path not taken? Like, yeah. what do you think that would feel like for you? Hmm. At that particular junction? In the year after and, you yeah. know, in the five years later. Mm, wow. 
Yeah, I'd probably still be in California, honestly. Maybe somewhere in the... Yeah, probably would still be working in the Bay. Might have moved to a different company by then. Um, it's funny, though. I can't see myself have, like, staying there too long because I was feeling a little stagnant. Mm. And I think all the other decisions leading up to that made me someone, like, that's not very happy with being... St- <laughs> like, right. it, it feels like smothering rather than, like, s- stable. Um, yeah. yeah. I'm also wondering, you said both of these and didn't draw the exact line but I feel like this line's drawn already in your head uh-huh. you were experimenting with doing something new once a month mm-hmm. and pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone mm-hmm. and then that's I don't even know if you got through the full year but that was capped off with one an extreme example of that yeah. do you think that that exercise a helped you make that decision b like primed you to make that decision i definitely think it did because i was i was tracking a lot of things too like i was tracking okay like what are the days i'm biking to work what are the days i'm like doing this thing it yeah it definitely primed me for sure i did make it yeah october being the biggest decision and i guess i stopped tracking after that but yeah. you'd already kind of done it accomplished the <laughs> yeah. goal or something yeah. fascinating um yeah i think that's a that's come up a few times on the show recently. Just the more you can put yourself in uncomfortable scenarios and get in touch with yourself for what happens in those moments, the more you're in touch with your instincts. And when you have these kind of like big decisions that maybe a lit, a pro con list would be appropriate for you're you're more ready to improvise. Uh, so the next big thing, well, I guess I'm curious what happened immediately after that year. Did your gamble yeah. pay off? Yeah. So I had a job offer from the firm in Seattle, um, and I had some free time to travel in between and yeah. And then I, I moved to Seattle for that. And That's exciting. For three years. Yeah. Three years. Yeah. So that really just directly informed the rest of your path. Yes. That's yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and what's next? So I know you had a crazy 2015. Yes. Yeah, that was, it's one of those things where... This was still in Seattle. This was still in Seattle. Um, it wasn't necessarily like my conscious choice on these things. But yeah, within, gosh, yeah, summer of 2015, I got my heart broken. Then two weeks later, or three weeks later, I was hit by a car while biking, um, which I loved biking. And then I was hit by a car. Um, and then about two or three weeks later, I got stung by a stingray in Nicaragua. <laughs> wow. So I got, I got hit on one side by the car and the other side got the stingray. Um, so I couldn't really walk much <laughs> or do anything at all. Oh my and I had all these like sad feelings all the time. Yeah. So. I think that like I've done, this is maybe my 25th episode and I swear like six people on the show have been hit by a car oh on their God, bike. Yeah. Like unusually high percentage maybe it's because a near-death experience um jolts you into better decision making and you're more likely to show up on a show about it maybe (laughs) so let's talk about these repercussions obviously none of them like you pointed out were your choice these are things that happened to you but were junctions for you nonetheless can we dig in a little bit to each of them or how they all hit you combined I think because they all happened within a short period of time that like the impact was magnified exponentially. Um, Yeah, because I was like having sad emotional feelings, like heart feelings and then sad, you know, 
physical pain feelings. <laughs> and then I couldn't, at that time, I remember I was like, I was like really gung-ho about trying to organize my life. This might be a theme. Um, but I was like, oh, I'm going to like stay balanced by doing like physical exercise and I'm going to have my social life and then I'm going to have like work stuff and I'm going to try to keep all these things like in balance with each other and having like basically two of them like knocked out at once um, was like, oh my gosh, you can't just plan ahead for stuff. Like you can plan, but life is still going to happen. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking, I don't want to dig into this sorrow too much, but I'm thinking about sitting after that particular combo of things happened to you. And it's like, heartbreak is the type of thing we like to blame ourselves for. Like, oh, what could I have done differently? Um, and then things like stingray bites. It's like, there's nothing I could have done differently. It's I like, just got bit by an animal. It's like, maybe if I had, you know, been five seconds off, you know, like yeah. it would have been fine. But it's like, maybe I didn't. if I'd yeah. chosen a different vacation. Yeah. Like, but. Yeah, I think um, on the topic of regret or just dwelling, it's like having those happen all together. It seems like a an elegant way to for life to prove to you that you can't control everything. Yeah, and again, it's like one of those. Uh, if I had the choice of none of them happening, yes, for sure. Um, but they ended up informing a lot of my art practice going forward. So let's talk about it. How? Yeah. So I had um, I started this like side stuff called WeirdSideProjects.com. Where did that idea come from? Yeah, because I was working in architecture and stuff like that takes a really long time to get built. You know, it was like, oh, this takes like you know, you work on something two years later, it gets built, and sometimes a client will decide something, and you're like, oh, okay, like it's going to be totally different now. Um, so I didn't feel like I had as much control over those projects and I wanted something that was like low pressure because again working in architecture you design something and it's like this will last forever um so yeah I wanted something that was like low pressure and I didn't have to worry about perfection um and I could just shoot off things and it wouldn't be a big deal um and it used to be anonymous because I was like oh these are embarrassing um, but yeah, so I, I did like, um, I made this like street sign and it looks like a normal street sign. And this me being all heartbroken at age 25. Um, yeah, it looks like a normal street sign that you would find uh, like OSHA standard. And it says, notice I never stopped loving you. I hope you're well. <laughs> and you put it up in the world. Yeah, I put it up in a park. And then, and I didn't really, I had my friend at this lookout. How? Oh, um, yeah, it looks, it's like a regulation, like plastic sign. And I use zip ties. I put it up in a really popular park in Seattle. Um, Did you have to like nail it into the ground? No, it's like on the chain link fence. Cool. Yeah. You're badass. Thanks. Um, so I put that up. It wasn't signed or anything. And I like ran away. And then like, (laughs) A couple, like maybe a couple weeks later, my friend sends me this link. She's like, oh my God, it's on Tumblr. And it had like 50,000 notes already. Yeah. <laughs> and people are like making all these like sad comments in the, in the you know, sad, sad comments. And I was like, wait, I'm not alone. No, you're so far from alone. <laughs> so I ended up doing a whole series of them. I, I tried not to force it. It was sort of like, okay, when the right words came around um like i think i have one that says like caution i thought my future would have had you in it oh 
Um, and then, you know, and I was doing these signs and I have another one that says like, attention, you are wonderful and deserve every happiness. Wow. So, that's like, you know, they're, Good they're, one. they're we're, we're on an upswing. <laughs> yeah. One. Yeah. Cause I was like, they can maybe be like bittersweet or melancholy, but I never wanted them to be like angry. What's the sign about melancholy? Oh yeah. So I made, this one was more recent. Um, I did, uh, these street um street name signs that like optimism street and like melancholy avenue and they're put at an intersection between each other so the intersection of optimism and melancholy wow have you ever gotten in trouble um funny you should ask that everyone so no one ever suspects an asian girl in a sweater (laughs) so and i i tried not to like you can like the the street signs like they get taken down eventually and I'm, mm. I feel like I'm like I'm not permanently damaging anything um, they have been featured on news like there's a photo of me actually putting them up that I, I released for a, a blog online so and local news that I'm like well now I'm you know like here's <laughs> there's proof now so um, these were kind of anonymous. Yeah, they were they were anonymous for a while. Um, just because I I didn't want people to be Are like, you Banksy? <sighs> Lady Banksy? Well, I can't tell people. <laughs> <laughs> the um, first rule of Banksy is you never talk about being Banksy. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like I didn't want people to be like, oh, who's this person? Or why are you feeling this way? I'm like, hey, like if it resonates with you, you'll get it. And it shouldn't be about me as a person in my personal life. So Yeah, absolutely. And it it hits you right in the face with resonance, I feel. Thanks. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't uh, make it about you. It's just so universal. Love that. Um, apart from, are all of the weird side projects, dot com projects, uh, physical objects in the world? Uh, yes, except for, well, there is a Twitter bot that writes food themed romance novel excerpts. What? Yeah. Can we plug this? Where yeah, are we it's at? a hungry romance bot or food romance bot. Let me check. I think if you search for either of those. Um, but yeah, it'll it'll write food themed romance novel excerpts. I wrote it in like three hours on a weekend um, where I was like, I don't really like romance novels. Um, they're, you know, honestly a little, they're fun or ridiculous. I don't, I don't read them, but I really like food. So I just had this idea of writing yeah, a Twitter bot that writes... Yeah, it's like at food romance spot. Is it like we're romancing the food or like we're romancing other people and food's just there? It's it's like if there was a romance novel that just was food themed. So I can read one. It says, hello, he said in a voice thick as pumpkin pie filling. You may call me Herb. <laughs> he was the most gorgeous man she had ever seen. So, yeah, it's it's a bot that just writes these things. Read more. Um, let's see. Some some of them are terrible because, um, again, it's a bot. Um, let's see. Her fingers trembled as she brushed his watermelon firm arms. You are my life now, he exhaled sensually. I'm dying. I'm trying to laugh off mic because I want to preserve these watermelon firm arms. Yeah. That is insane. How do you train a bot to write like um, that? So basically this is this is a pretty dumb bot actually where it's sort of like a version of extreme Mad Libs with like Mad Libs with like layered versions of Mad Libs. So I'll have a bank of words that I'm like, okay, things that are reddish, like cherry or apple. And then I'm like, okay, these are the words that are used to describe like lips or cheeks or Got things it. like that. And then sentence structure and like nestled it so it's not there's always a piece of dialogue but there's also like a description and stuff like that yeah wow that's amazing thank you 
Um, and talk about the role this plays in your life. Do you feel like it's just a really fun outlet or like has it helped you process things like how big is this for you emotionally yeah it's it's actually a lot of them have been about process I mean some of them are just random hence the name weird side projects like I just like want to cast my toes in chocolate for an art show and I put it on there so it was like keeping it it was that freedom to create without my self-perceived pressure of like oh you have to be professional and you have to be like at this like amazing standard of something um so it was like yeah this is a a free space for me to experiment um but also yeah it is used for processing things um there's definitely some space that i have to take after like anything happening that i'm not like immediately making the thing it's like oh the words or the medium come later and then i make it Mm, yeah that's interesting Let's dig into that, actually. Okay, yeah, sure. I'm curious what you mean. The words in the medium come later. Yeah, well, I mean, some of like the, the things that are on like the street signs. Um, for example, I have another piece. They're called Name Tags for a Funeral. And it's these series of name tags that look like normal, like, hello, my name is name tags, like red and white. Um, but it says, um, I miss you, but really I miss. And then the white space for people to put in a blank. Like for oh. people to fill in the blank. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that one. That one is like, well, that's not a sentiment that goes on the street sign because I have to leave that open for anyone to fill in. So I've I've put up a bunch of them, and so I'll say like, I miss you, but really I miss your cooking, or I miss you, but really I miss your singing in the morning. And it's like that way of like when you miss someone, you know, whether family, romantically, any sort of relationship, sometimes you just need to articulate what it is you miss about that person maybe you don't miss the whole person you're like oh i don't miss like x y and z but like when i am missing someone who is far away or they're gone like what are the things that i miss about them and value as a person right so that you're basically starting with a kernel of emotion and then choosing a medium and it varies quite a lot yeah some are stickers some are signs some are bots you know summer scope you know it's uh i I don't want to force the thing on a sign just because yeah right and you started this when you were living in seattle and it's followed you here uh so i know we want to talk about your move here Uh um i'm also curious is it tricky for you to carve out space both like mentally and in your day for side projects with you know like they're literally side projects you have a whole other day job or what have you going yeah on? that was really hard when I was yeah I was working in Seattle I always had you know full-time work and like this stuff takes time and also takes headspace and it also takes time that you don't see all the drafts of stuff too that you have to work through all the drafts and um, you were anonymous so you were mm-hmm. kind of keeping it from co-workers mm-hmm. or like um some of my like friends knew mm-hmm. um but I, yeah, I wasn't like signing them or anything yeah right I feel like some workplaces are threatened by you having like something cooler going on on the side (laughs) yeah that was it's actually funny because that's that's now a lot of the work that has led to like winning projects and work now um yeah 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 like I've I've given talks about it and I'm like oh I'm talking about me as a professional designer architect and I'm talking about this thing and like people will come up to me afterwards and be like oh my gosh I love your weird side project yeah that's awesome (laughs) so uh, so let's talk about moving here. What uh-huh. did life 
throw at you that precipitated your uh, arrival here in Bushwick? Yeah, so I guess I can trace the exact events. It was 2017. Um, and, oh, in 2016, that's when I had given the, that's when I stopped being anonymous with the weird side projects. Um, because I, I gave a talk about it somewhere. I was like, okay, like, it's why am I hiding this part of myself now? If people are resonating with it, I shouldn't be ashamed of it anymore. Um, and then 2017, I gave a short talk in Seattle, used that talk to give another short talk at a conference, uh, art tech conference. And, um, some of the other speakers were running this thing called the school for poetic computation, which is here in New York. Um, and it's about the poetic applications of code and, um, po- yeah, poetic applications of code, basically like using code to make art. Um, and they're like, Oh, that your talk was great. You know, you should, you should think about SFPC. Um, and I was like, Oh, huh. Like I've, I've always, I had always wanted to go to New York at some point, um, but I didn't need a good reason. I didn't want to just like pick up and like go. Um, yeah, so I applied for the School for Poetic Computation in July and I found out and then it came very soon. And then I was like, well, okay, so I'm going to New York for three months for this like residency slash school and we'll see how it goes. And then I came here in September 2017. And then I was like, oh, well, I guess I need to move to New York now. Why? (laughs) Uh, Just like creatively, it's really good here. Oh, so much to dig into. Okay. Basically, someone recommended you should apply to this. Mm -hmm. And you were like, hmm, yeah. 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 There was, it it was like the the timing, because like I, like I still love Seattle. Like I love the mountains there. I miss my friends. You know, it's, it's gorgeous. Um, but I was, I was feeling a little creatively stuck, um, just cause I felt like I was, I was falling into the same patterns of things and I wasn't, I was, I was getting too complacent. I was just feeling like I was getting a little stuck and I wasn't sure what to do next. Um, but the timing of that came along and I was like, huh, New York. And, uh, it, it was on my list. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, the power of a recommendation. That's something I was thinking about earlier mm-hmm. today. Like, how many things have I done just because someone was like, you should try this. That's great. It's a really nice thing to do for other people to like be yeah. like, hey, you should try this. That's a good point. Yeah. That's like a great way to pay that one forward. Uh, let's talk about why New York is so great creatively. Oh, man. It's just like, I felt in Seattle was, um, let's see, New York, I mean, just the art scene and like, there's so many different levels of it. Like you have the museums, like you can go to like 20 different art museums, right? But then there's also like the people here who are like working artists um, and also everything in between with like the people working day jobs, like I have friends working day jobs doing art on the side, I have friends being full-time artists, um, you know, and it's just that it's, it's energizing. Um, definitely like the community is great, you know, just having other people who are also trying to push their art practice and like making that a priority um, or at least like higher up on the priority list is like, wow. Um, It's definitely intimidating, um, but it's also been really good for inspiration and thinking about work and talking about work and um, critically, you know, thinking about the work as well. Yeah, That's interesting. Um, You work alone and you are really inspired, you say, by other people trying to 
push their work. Mm-hmm. How does that how does that play out? You're not uh, collaborating. Yeah, though I definitely do have friends that I will show them my first drafts. Yeah. Like these are people like I have friends from like high school and college that I'm like, I'll check with tone for them. Like, does A or B sound better? You're a little uh, jury. Yeah, yeah, advisors. no, and it, it's great. Because it's like people you trust that you're like, okay, these people will still be friends with me, even my workish, you know, not good. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I definitely, I definitely like have test it out with people and also for example the the larger installation pieces of like the museum of almost realities it was really good um because i developed i i had written a lot of it while i was in seattle content wise but it developed into an installation while i was at the school for poetic computation let's talk about the school for poetic mm-hmm. computation i don't think i have any idea what that entailed yeah it's this 10-week program in it's in the west beth artist building in west village um, and yeah, it's sort of like a combination of like a residency and a research group and a school. And, uh, the students come from different, um, points in their artistic career. Like there's some folks that are done mostly coding stuff for work and they've done a little bit of art. And there's some people with like, who've done like MFAs in art. Um, but it's like that, that idea of like, Hey, there's, there's different tracks, like hardware, critical theory, um, code poetry and code visuals, um, sort of like tying them all together and exploring. So basically this is, uh, sounds like a really preeminent resource in school for people who want to combine art and technology. Yes. Yeah. I, um, I feel like I have a solid handle on your relationship with art and your identity as a creative person. Where did technology come into this for you? Well, Definitely, I can say because I grew up in Silicon Valley. Mm, yeah, you're like steeped in it. <laughs> yeah, my dad being a computer programmer. Oh, right. I yeah. even mentioned this. We're combining our parents. Yeah. yeah. So okay. it was definitely like growing up, there would be things like, oh, like, hey, we're going to add more RAM into this computer. Like, let me show you how to do this. Like, help me how to, like, help me, t- let me teach you how to do it. Um, definitely did get a little discouraged in high school just because I had you know, the opposite of a good recommendation when you have teachers who are like, oh, girls, it's okay if girls are bad at math. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, and it was just, I I follow a lot of artists who also work with tech and and there's a lot of things that I see that they've done that have been amazing. And that was, you know, it's, it's, a, it's another medium to work in, essentially. Right. Um, a slightly different topic. I want to talk about the junction or the decision or the moment where you decide to make an idea happen. Oh. So it, I, I'm, I'm gathering that you've given yourself a lot of practice doing that because of your weird side projects. Uh, you're, you know, a sign, one sign is a lot lower stakes than an entire museum. And, you know, a series of signs is in between the stakes of those two things. So you gave yourself a lot of practice, like putting something out in the world before you created an entire museum exhibit. Yeah. But what do you, what goes into that moment where you're vetting out an idea? Oh, that's tricky. And do you ever shoot down your own ideas? Are you like, this isn't, some things aren't worth keeping? Yeah. Some of them are just bad. But How do you know? Uh, well, it's like, I'll, I'll make it or I'll do a draft and then I'll look at it later and it just doesn't feel right. 
Um, or sometimes the medium won't be right. Like the phrases that I'll like sit on for a long time until I decide "Mm, this shouldn't be a sign. This actually needs to be something else. Um, yeah, that's sort of like learning to trust my gut instincts after a while, like after putting out enough things, like there's some things I'm like, Oh, I feel like these got across better and connected with other people. Um, yeah, it's it's tricky. I I can't because it's, it's mostly it's like less of a it's partially a head thing, but also a gut thing that's built over time. Yeah, when you are deciding whether to make something a reality, do you think a lot about how past things have resonated that are similar, or do you think more about like this is important to me and I don't care about the audience reception? Uh, yeah. Well, when I first started it, it wasn't about. And also because they're, they're street art pieces that are installed anonymously. A lot of the time, I don't know what the audience reaction is. Oh, fascinating. Like yeah. that, that Tumblr post, like someone else took the photo and that's how it went popular. Right. And other ones, it's funny because I've seen them end up on like meme sites or things like yeah. that. Um, but a lot of the time, I won't actually know what a broader audience outside of my like my social network circles thinks about it. So um yeah i i haven't i haven't self-censored too much in terms of like oh what will be popular um because it's more like i'm using these to process and i have enough projects that if like oh this one like people didn't respond to it as much it was part of my process anyway Hmm. do you have any creative or artistic almost realities i guess you don't want to share them because you could save them for later and they could be realities there, yeah, there's some stuff I'm working on for this. I mean, I could talk about what I'm working on now, I guess. If you'd like to. I'm curious, though, about, like, there's almost something, there's an idea here about the almost realities of, like, your artistic cutting room floor. Mm. Like, the things that you, the ideas you just decided not to do. Yeah, I think some of those where I was like, okay, I don't like, it was maybe, like, things about, Mm, like one example I can give is like something about a funeral like someone a family member passed away I'm like this doesn't need to be public Mm. it's like I went through it I used the process this particular expression of it doesn't need to be public yeah that's a good good reason to censor yourself and I'm sorry uh yeah so let's talk about what you're working on now yeah so I'm um, showing the Museum of Almost Realities again in Chicago this fall. Woo-hoo. I'd love to show it in New York again if I can get a space. Um, Let's let April show her museum. We all got to go. This is so cool. <laughs> if you're listening out there, hit us up. Yeah, please. Um, but I'm currently working on a new piece called The Department of Emotional Labor. Timely, relevant, love it. So while the Museum of Almost Realities is about our relationship with our past, present, and future, uh, the Department of Emotional Labor is about our relationships with each other and how we like save and hurt each other. Um, And like, how do you, how do you negotiate that? You know, like how, how do we, how do we act towards each other and how do we like mess up, but also like make up for it? Fascinating. And is that, going to be a similar format similar medium similar um it'll have a little bit more of a web component Mm. um i think but yeah i'd still enjoy working with at least a physical manifestation of things yeah where did this idea come from in your life oh man i think again it's like one of those things that sort of built up over years where you're like oh this friendship like 
everyone's been in a situation where you feel like you're maybe putting more work into a relationship than the other person. Absolutely. Many women. Yes. <laughs> and it's, it's sort of like, hey, like, what if there was this soft bureaucracy that actually took care of these things? Like, you could invoice for emotional labor. Yes. Or if you could, you know, say you're like, oh, I'm going through something right now. It's like, oh, it's a family or whatever. I need, a, I'm going to submit a form, an emergency requisition form for mm-hmm. emotional labor. That's like, oh, for the next month, I'm going to need this additional emotional yes. labor. Purchasing agent yourself into yeah. getting treated fairly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow, this is really fascinating. There just is no governing force on the way that we treat each other. And I, you know, I wouldn't want one in real life just because what happens when you have, you know, what happens um, well, but, we don't. Bureaucracy is not that effective of a way to handle like most things. Exactly. So. But it's like this, like almost utopian idea of like, hey, yeah, if we're like to the future and like a little to the side of, yeah, what if you, what if that, what if everything else was taken care of and we could actually like devote time and energy and like resources to this? Yeah. Um, on the on this topic, I guess, uh, m- moving toward the end of our segment here, is there anything you want to plug, any place you want to send people so they can check out your work? Yes. So uh, you can find more of my work at weirdsideprojects.com and you can find the Museum of Almost Realities at almostrealities.org. Um, and you can find me on social media under my first name, last name, April Satarman, or yeah, at weirdsideprojects. Um, yeah, and that's where I usually put all my work out. Um, I also have a newsletter if you want sneak previews and things like that. That's also on my website. Amazing. Sign up for April's newsletter. Let's all collectively think about our almost realities. I know I'm going to be thinking about mine in a new way. Uh, if you want to come on this show and tell me about your almost realities, we'll give April full cred for the vocab word there. But um, yeah. Uh, hit me up at asha at radiofreebrooklyn.org. You can also find me uh, on Facebook or on Radio Free Brooklyn's website. Radio Free Brooklyn is a nonprofit organization, and I have some stuff to plug from you because for you, for us, on behalf of us, because we need your help. Uh, first thing is that we're trying to get to Austin to present at South by Southwest, and we need your help getting on to uh, getting our panels upvoted. You can do that at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash South by Southwest. Sorry, actually, it's RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash SXSW. The second thing is that Radio Free Brooklyn uh, has started, or rather has been partially funded to start next year an after-school program for media literacy with teens Let's help some teens launch some podcasts. Um, We need your help finishing the rest of our funding for that program. So if you are so inclined, please visit RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash after school to make a tax deductible donation. Uh, Theme song is by Nation of Language. Go to them and uh, sorry, go to anywhere you get music to listen to them. April, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This was incredible. I appreciate it. Uh, gonna play you guys out with a song by Phoebe Bridgers. I will not be here next week. It's Labor Day weekend. I'm on vacation. 
Um, but you'll be hearing from me in coming weeks with new guests. Bye.
Fucking hard.